Well, hello again. Uh, today I'm going to read uh, a couple of little sections from uh, Massey Lunajad's memoir, The Wind in My Hair, um, which uh, continues the uh, theme of the past few weeks that I've been uh, that I've been exploring of uh, Iran and the protests there and uh, the Iranian fight for freedom. If you're not familiar with Missy Ellen Jad, I recommend you look her up. She's a fantastic, uh, bold and brave um, feminist warrior uh, who has survived uh, several attempts by the Iranian government to kill or kidnap her. Uh, they're terrified of her, uh, and rightly so. Uh, she's one of the most prominent uh, actually probably the most prominent Iranian opposition figure uh, who began uh, a few campaigns uh, a few years ago uh, where women uh, would t take off their headscarves uh, and post on social media um, pictures of themselves or videos of themselves uh, with their hair flowing free uh, in public uh, in Iran. And uh, this... I'm going to read two sections here. The first section comes from early on in the book and she recounts uh, the events of the Iranian Revolution of 1979 um, and talks a little bit about her own experience with the headscarf and her family's and also her father, Aga Jan, who, is, who was a member of the um, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And was very devout, uh, uh, pious, and and pro Ayatollah sort of guy. So, here we go. More than eighty years ago, there was a law that banned the wearing of the hijab. If I had been alive then, I'd have opposed that law, not because I believe in the hijab, but because I believe in freedom of choice. Women should have the right to choose what they wear. Reza Shah's reign came to an end after Soviet and British forces occupied the country in August 1941 to ease the shipment of weapons to Russia, then fighting Nazi Germany. Reza Shah had hired hundreds of German technicians to help on various projects and the British demanded their expulsion. The presence of these technicians was the justification that Britain needed to invade Iran. Reza Shah abdicated in favour of his 22-year-old son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. The new king pursued his father's programme of modernisation and introduced secular education and a legal system, imported Western technology and industry and spent heavily on his armed forces. Thanks to the Pahlavis, Iran became a modern country. This was the peak of women's rights. Under the Pahlavis, women made substantial gains, especially in matters of family law and divorce. They drove cars, worked outside the home, voted in elections, ran for political office and were appointed to cabinet positions. Until then, the hijab was not a contentious issue, at least not in the cities. In urban centres, you could find women without hijab, working and living alongside religious women who wore the full hijab. In 1978... 
The Shah was hit by the perfect storm of protests when liberal opponents who wanted more political freedom joined forces with the clerics, who complained about lax morals, and the radical left, which wanted a worker's paradise. The combined opposition under the leadership of Khomeini proved too much, and Mohammad Reza Pahlavi left Iran in January 1979, never to return. He was the third king in a row to be forced into exile. A more democratic freedom beckoned, but instead Iran turned toward religious authoritarianism. Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, exiled for more than 15 years, mostly in Iraq and then in France, returned to a hero's welcome, greeted by millions of Iranians as if he were the Messiah. The unsmiling Khomeini, then in his late 70s, didn't look heroic at all. Even on the day of his triumphant return, Khomeini had the look of a cold-hearted man. There was no sign of elation or joy. He promised harsh justice. Within ten days, the regime left behind by the Shah collapsed and the Islamic militants took over. As the revolution took on a more Islamic hue, the question of the hijab and women's rights came up more and more. The trouble was that at the dawn of revolutionary Iran, women's concerns were an afterthought. In the beginning, Khomeini had spoken of his respect for democracy, human rights and freedom of religion. It was only after the triumph of the revolution that many women realised that they had willingly ceded their rights and brought about a regime that demanded their subjugation. On March 8th, 1979, 100,000 women turned up for International Women's Day to protest laws to introduce compulsory hijab and other Islamic restrictions. Until then, Women's Day had passed unnoticed in Iran. Shadowing the demonstration were mobs of zealots and paramilitary forces armed with knives, broken glass, bricks and stones. They attacked and injured many women while security forces watched passively. The huge demonstration certainly had some results. One leading cleric, Ayatollah Mahmoud Talagani, declared that Women cannot be forced to wear the hijab. His was a minority voice. The Islamists were undeterred. In 1979, Hassan Rouhani, a junior cleric who in 2013 became Iran's seventh president, oversaw the, re the reorganisation of the armed forces. He was the first to order the women who worked for him to wear the hijab or be fired. In ministry after ministry, women were given a choice, wear the hijab or don't come to work. Soon after, even those entering a government building had to wear the hijab. By 1983, compulsory hijab was the law. Over a number of years, the Islamic government made life worse for women. The law in the Islamic Republic put the value of a woman's life and the value of her testimony at half of a man's. Women were barred from becoming judges in accordance with Islamic tradition. Beaches were segregated as were cinemas and many public spaces including sports stadiums. Under the Shah, family law was based on Sharia law but was reformed, re, but was reformed to allow women the right to divorce and retain custody of children. After the revolution, those reforms were reversed. The changes didn't happen overnight and the women resisted and put up a fight, especially over the issue of compulsory hijab, which set the tone for how women's rights would shape up. 
Iran's first revolutionary decade was traumatic and bloody. First came revolutionary terror as the new regime executed hundreds of former political leaders and military commanders, often without trial. Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein took advantage of the turmoil to invade Iran. The war started three days after my fourth birthday. Even as the bombs were falling, the regime went about eliminating all internal opposition from Islamic Marxist groups like the Mojahedin-e-Khalq to the Fedayeen and the Communist Party, the Tudeh. Executions, forced confessions and torture were common. But the Islamic Revolution had also brought about changes in village life. In the fields, men and women worked together, and the women, including my mother, aunts, cousins and nieces, would roll their trousers up to their knees and wade into the rice paddies. They'd put on a loose headscarf, and if it slipped off, no one complained. The new regime tried to ban laughter and fun. For a while, chess and pop music were banned. Women singers were particularly hated, and most of the stars, among them, among them Hedy, Mahasti and Suzanne, left the country or were forced to stay hidden from view. A fate that befell the country's biggest pop star, Gugush, before she too left Iran in 2000. Wedding parties were segregated, with men and women sitting in different rooms or in the same room but separated by a rope and blankets so no one could see the other side. My father was more than just committed to the Islamic Republic. He enlisted in the Basij, a paramilitary group used as an auxiliary security force and part of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards created to protect the regime. In the early days of the revolution, he and other Basijis would set up roadblocks at night stopping cars coming from Babel to search for music tapes and alcohol, both of which were forbidden. He'd delight in smashing cassette tapes, stomping on them or even breaking them with his hands. With his short temper and angry manner, he was known as the Cranky Basiji, who lectured the young men he caught. Agajan was famed for his zeal in lecturing young men about attending the Friday prayers. As far back as I can remember, all the women in my family slept with their headscarves on. Everyone including mother, my sister, my grandmother, even cousins and nieces. It sounded strange years later when I tried to explain it to my friends in Tehran, or even later in London and New York. But the truth, but the truth of it is that we kept our headscarves on all the time, indoors and outdoors. After sleeping with my headscarf on, every morning before getting up I had to make sure it had not slipped off during the night, as it would upset Aga Jan and he'd complain. My hair was part of my identity, but you couldn't see it. When I was growing up, my hair was no longer part of my body. It had been hijacked and replaced with a headscarf. Just a couple of uh, little things that came into my mind as I was reading there. Uh, firstly, uh, in her description of... Um, Reza Pahlavi, the overthrown king, he, uh, I lost my train of thought, uh, Reza Pahlavi, but, Reza Pahlavi, the, um, the, the king who was overthrown, um, 
he, uh, you know, his regime, uh, I think a lot of, far be it for me to, to, uh, to lecture Iranians, but I think a lot of the Iranian opposition figures um, look back with uh, a somewhat rose-tinted view on on the Pahlavi regime, certainly. As Alunijad says there, it was a, a modernising, secular-ish um, regime and, and fairly open to women's rights and advancement. And uh, in, in those respects, you know, a paradise uh, compared to what came after. But it was it was a, also a cruel despotism uh, where uh, political repression was, was rife. Um, so I think uh, sometimes uh, people look back on, back on the Pahlavis with a bit too much fondness just because of what uh, came after, which was, of course, much, much worse. Secondly, as she mentions, uh, that Hassan Rouhani... Is, who was the who became president in two thousand thirteen, uh, though was no longer. Uh, when he became president, he was lauded as you know one of the great moderates of Iran, and yet as Alenijad points out there, he was the first to force women to wear the hijab in the workplace. Um, you know that so it always uh it always uh interests me when when people talk about the hardliners and the moderates in Iran. Because uh, the moderates are hardliners by any reasonable standard, and the hardliners are, well, just uh, much more, much more hardline by our standards. But no, nobody's really a moderate by by any sort of reasonable standard that um, that you could uh, come up with. Uh, you know, they're all completely extreme and, and beholden to this rotten theocratic system there's you know moderation within that system is no true moderation anyway next up i'm going to read the short little epilogue to alan jazz book uh where she discusses the the uh protests against the regime not these ones obviously this was came out a few years ago but uh she discusses women's uh protests uh, and protesting against the hijab and such. So, here we go. On December 27th, 2017, a Wednesday, Vida Movahed, a 31-year-old mother dressed in all black, calmly climbed a five-foot-tall utility box in Enkalab Street, Revolution Street, one of Tehran's busiest, removed her headscarf, tied it to a stick, and waved it for all to see. Three different witnesses filmed her short protest against compulsory hijab and sent it to me. Instead, uh, just to make clear, at this point, um, Missy isn't no longer in Iran. She's now in exile in America. She was arrested, but the video of her act of defiance, her resistance, spread through social media with unparalleled speed. The next day, small street protests in the city of Mashhad over high prices and corruption quickly spilled over into some 85 other cities and towns. A police crackdown on protesters and social media ended the unrest, leaving 25 dead and 3,700 arrested. But throughout the protests, and for days after, 
Movahed's single act of defiance captured the attention of many activists. The protests over the economy ended, but Movahed's fate concerned us. I contacted many organisations and media outlets to publicise her case. At the time, we didn't even know Movahed's name. I created a hashtag in Persian, Where is the girl of Revolution Street? which has retweeted more than 19,000 times. One of my key supporters, Shaparak Shajarizade, said we should all emulate Movahed's act of defiance, and that prompted other women from the hashtag White Wednesdays campaign to stage similar protests in different towns and cities across Iran. On January 24, 2018, Amnesty International, the London-based rights group, called on Iranian authorities to immediately and unconditionally release Movahed, who had been protesting peacefully against the country's mandatory Islamic dress code. In their statement, Amnesty called on the Rouhani government to end the persecution of women who speak out against compulsory veiling and abolish this discriminatory and humiliating practice. United Nations Special Rapporteur on Iran, Asma Jahangir, had called on Iran six months earlier to end its compulsory hijab laws. The momentum was building against compulsory hijab. Two days after Amnesty's statement, Mavahed was quietly released. Then other women took her protest further. On January 29th, six women in different parts of Tehran, some carrying white scarves, others green and red, also made the symbolic gesture, removing their headscarves and waving them for all to see. One protester said, I took my scarf off because I'm tired of our government telling me what to do with my body. More and more women took to the streets to remove their headscarves in public. On busy street corners, standing tall on utility boxes, platforms, anything that elevated them so they could be seen. The issue of compulsory hijab, a topic that had been taboo for almost 40 years, had burst into the open. Everyone was now talking about compulsory hijab. Newspaper columns were devoted to the issue. Even politicians entered the debate. It was no longer a trivial issue. The law wasn't going to change overnight, but women were not giving up. The security forces were not as enlightened as the rest of the population. At least 30 anti-hijab activists, including 22-year-old Shima Babai, were arrested. Some women protesters were roughed up. At least three suffered broken bones. Shaparak was followed for two weeks before she too was arrested as she took off her headscarf on a busy sidewalk. She was released when her family posted bail. Every morning, I face the day proud of my sisters who are bravely challenging the antiquated and discriminatory compulsory hijab laws. And at the same time, I fear for their safety as I remember my own prison days. And yet the fight goes on, because Iranian women want the freedom to choose. After the arrests, I received a selfie video from a young woman who stood outside the local Basij offices in Tehran and defiantly took off her white headscarf. As she stared into the camera, she loudly said, Our weapon is a white scarf, and today I'm here to ask why have Shima, Babai and others been arrested? Even if you arrest me, 
be assured that there will be many more who will come out to protest. I'm ready to pay the price if it will bring a free Iran. And now, uh, I did say that was going to be the last one, but I just looked back at the previous couple of pages in the final chapter before the epilogue. Um, it's a short bit again, but uh, I can't help, but I can't, I, I can't, I just want to read this out. It's also very stirring, stirring stuff. I am not the first campaigner against compulsory hijab, but I hope to be the last one. My journey has seen me leave my village and my country because I want the freedom to determine my own identity and to be myself rather than assume a role I don't believe in. The story of Nafas and her father transports me back to when I clashed regularly with Aga Jan in Gomikola over my hijab. I wanted to climb trees and run in the fields and ride a bicycle. All were forbidden to me. As I grew older, I had to rebel to find myself. The truth is that we need to create a free Iran, a country where people can freely choose. The future of Iran will be determined by rebels like Nafas, Bahar and others. And me. I want an Iran that is democratic, where women have equal rights. Iran today is like a battlefield. On one hand, the enforcers of compulsory hijab have access to guns and batons, unlimited cash and appliant subservient media. In 2016, the government allocated 6 trillion tomans, $1.7 billion, for the protection of hijab, compared to 174 million tomans, $49 million, for for the protection of the environment. On the other hand, We have women and men whose weapons are computers, mobile phones and social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and more. I'm a child of an Iran that carries many scars. The scar of the revolution, the wounds of an eight-year war, the lacerations of mass executions, the daily nicks and slashes of discrimination that women face daily. I now carry the scar of exile. By themselves, each of these is enough to knock you out for good. There are periods when darkness prevails and threatens to swallow you whole. To overcome the despair and the country's dark era, I think about my mother's words and open my eyes as wide as I can and stare out into the darkness. The human rights situation in Iran and the situation with respect to women's rights is dark and gloomy. But I'm sure that young Iranian women are as brave as previous generations of young women, and that they have opened their eyes wider than ever before to win over the darkness. I don't know when I will return to Iran. Living in exile has been painful. I've been thrown out of my house. Uh, I've managed to sneak back in via social media and satellite, satellite television. I'm out of Iran, but it's as if I never left the country. When I was growing up, I used to watch the clerics, the Friday prayer leaders and other officials of the Islamic Republic on our 14-inch black and white television. Now the same clerics hear my voice from satellite TV and on Facebook.
They know my name. It is not only my voice they are hearing. It is the voice of millions of Iranian women who are no longer willing to be silent. The women of Iran want to be free to make their own choices. That's why the struggle will continue until we all feel the wind in our hair. And there we have it. Uh, obviously, a lot of that is uh, strikingly relevant to what's going on today in Iran. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, yes. Time for a revolution. A proper one this time. So... I don't really know what to say. I've said everything I need to say about Iran, I think, about my hopes and view and analysis, such as it is. Uh, so all I can say now is uh, solidarity. Again, um, bring it down. Bring down that veil theocracy. Good luck. <laughs>